evening to Nehemiah chapter number 13. Nehemiah chapter number 13. And uh, here tonight, Lord willing, at least our intention is to leave behind Nehemiah chapter 13. We've been in it for uh, about five weeks now. Uh, but I wanted to, you know, as I studied through this chapter, there's a phrase that's used in verse 31 uh, that struck me as interesting. And when I began to pick it up and look at it and carry it through Scripture, the thoughts behind it, the Lord showed me some things. And uh, I have a few simple truths I want to give you tonight uh, from these verses. Nehemiah chapter number 13, and we'll read verses 30 and 31. Nehemiah closes the entirety of the book of Nehemiah by saying this, Thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites every one in his business, and for the wood offering at times appointed, and for the first fruits. He says, remember me, O my God, for good. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. Give clarity to my thoughts tonight, Lord. Give unction to the words that are spoken. And may the Holy Ghost use them to impress upon us these valuable, infinite, eternal truths for your glory and honor. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm interested in what Nehemiah says in verse 31. He says at the close of the book of Nehemiah that after he had essentially set the spiritual house in order to mimic or to echo uh, what we've been talking about in the morning services the past few weeks, he set everything in order and that after he did that, uh, he, he says, I stepped back and I looked at it and I had cleansed them from all strangers, from all those that would defile the house. And he said, there was one little business that was left to do. He said, I had to gather the priests and the Levites together and I had to set them at their appointed places so that the wood offering would be taken care of. You know, the Old Testament Levitical offerings are one of the richest studies you can make in Scripture. You ought to sometime jump into Leviticus, the first five chapters, and just bury yourself there and not come out until you see Jesus. And uh, you'll find Him on every page. You'll find Him in every sacrifice. You'll find Him in every nuance of those five offerings. There were five Levitical offerings. There was the uh, sin offerings, those that were given... Uh, in response to a person's transgression. That was the sin offering and the trespass offering. And then there were three other offerings. These were the sweet savor offerings. And these were not given when a man had sinned necessarily, but they were given as a means of worship uh, towards God. They were given as a gift from the worshiper to his God. And that would have been the meat offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. You'll find all manner of variations of, of these offerings in the Old Testament. You'll find sometimes modifiers placed on them. In fact, for instance, if a person was giving a peace offering, there were times that they had to give a meat offering with it. Times when they were doing a burnt offering, that they might have to give a peace offering with it. And there were certain nuances and qualities about these various sacrifices that gave importance and meaning to them, distinction to them. But go through the Old Testament... Go through the law, uh, walk up onto Sinai with Moses and gaze those stone tablets, and you won't find anywhere a provision for a wood offering. In fact, you'll find this phrase only twice in the Word of God, both of them in the book of Nehemiah. Here in chapter number 13 and uh, verse number 31, and then back in chapter number 10, verse 34, when it simply says this, "...we cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people..." For the wood offering, 
to bring it into the house of our God after the houses of our fathers at times appointed year by year to burn upon the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. You know, I think sometimes we we sort of miss many of the practical details surrounding biblical events and ideals. And you think about the Old Testament temple, and it's easy sometimes just sort of see it as this uh, th- this imaginary place, when of course we know it was not. It was very real, it was very tangible. It was the kind of place where uh, God's people would come in, they'd give offerings, they'd give sacrifices. If you were to walk in, we kind of had the idea that it would be this sort of sacred, hallowed place where there wouldn't be a hush of a noise and there'd be this sort of sacredness and hallowedness about it when you'd walk around. When in fact, if you'd went into the Old Testament temple, it would have been a place that was noisy. It would have been a place that would have uh, smelled and sounded like barn animals. It would have been a place where there would have been a flurry of activity and busyness all the time. And it would have been a place where the unmistakable aroma of wood burning would have been ever hanging in the air. We talk sometimes about the untold billions of gallons of blood that must have rolled off that hillside in all the years that worship was instituted. But have you ever thought about how many uh, millions, millions no doubt, of cords of wood had to have been burned? to keep those fires going. In fact, one of the Old Testament offerings, the burnt offering, had a modifier, had a type of offering uh, that was paired with it, which was called the continual burnt offering. So in other words, there were individual burnt offerings that a person would come and bring, but the nation itself uh, would offer a continual burnt offering. And there was an altar of burnt offering where ever since they settled... Uh, down in Israel at all times, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they would be burning a continual burnt offering for the Lord. I don't know if you've ever done much uh, wood burning, but it don't take you long. You can empty out a woodshed that's pretty sizable in no time. You know what people used to do for a hobby 200 years ago? They cut wood. It'd get cold. You know what they'd do? They'd cut wood. It'd get hot. You know what they'd do? They'd cut wood. Uh, they'd have some free time. You know what they'd do? They'd cut wood. You know why that is? Because it don't take long to burn through it. It takes a lot of wood to keep that wood stove burning. It takes a lot of wood if you're going to heat with a fireplace. And what we have in this passage of Scripture is a very practical, simple, straightforward means of people serving God in the dispensation of the law. Somebody had to go cut down the wood and bring it into the house of God. And they called this action and this ministry and this service, the wood offering. Now, there's a few questions that I want to ask about it, but first I want to point out some things about this wood offering. Let me say, number one, giving you the character of the wood office or the wood offering, that this office, this ministry, was practical, though it was not scriptural. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, Thou shalt bring the wood in. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, Thou shalt go out to thus forest and hew down the Lord's trees. Nowhere will you find a prescribed means and method of doing this. We'll get here in a little while as to why that is and why it's in Nehemiah's day that they're addressing it. But can I tell you something? There's a lot of stuff that it takes in the work of God that you won't find a single chapter and verse on. You ain't going to find anywhere it says, Thou shalt change the furnace filters. You won't find anywhere it's going to say, Thou shalt teach the Sunday school class. 
You sure enough, some of you ladies are going to give me a witness right here, won't never find anywhere where Paul said he gave some apostles, he gave some prophets, he gave some nursery workers. There's a lot of stuff that is not necessarily found on the pages of Scripture, but in order for the house of God to function, somebody's got to carry the wood. Somebody's got to fill the role. Somebody's got to step in to the ministry. This was a practical ministry. It was not scripturally mandated. But the reason is because God intended to use grace in the hearts of His people to fulfill this need. And I say there's a lot of stuff that it takes in the house of God in order for the house of God to function that you won't find chapter and verse 4. But it's necessary nonetheless. This was an office that was practical, though it was not scriptural. Let me give you a second thing. This was an office that was glorifying to God, though it was not glamorous to the individual. You imagine that if your job is to cut the wood and bring it into the house of God, about 5% of what you do is going to be before the eyes of other men. The vast majority of your time is going to be spent out in the forest, out in the field, cutting wood with no one around, nobody seeing you sweat, nobody seeing you labor, nobody seeing you struggle, nobody there to clap for you, nobody there to cheer for you, nobody there to pin a medal on you. Uh, the loading the wood into the wagon, the toting it all the way to Jerusalem. Most people are never going to see that part. They'll only see the part when you roll through the gates and say, hey, I'm here with the wood for the burnt offering. And even then, you'll be viewed as a delivery boy. Won't be with much fanfare. They won't be laying down palm branches in front of you. They're going to say, all right, pull it in right here and unload it. This was not a glamorous ministry. But it was a ministry that God took note of. Can I tell you something? There was never an axe that swung in the wilderness that God was unaware of. There was never a single drop of sweat that fell from one of these labors providing for the house of God. But what God took note of it, there was never a tear of anguish or of exertion, but what God put it in a bottle. Man may have not seen what was taking place, but God saw and took note of it. And when there was no one to do it, God pressed upon the heart of Nehemiah to make provision for somebody to step into the role and somebody to stand into the gap. You know what that tells me? That tells me God was paying attention to it i got news for you. There's a lot of stuff you do around the house of God that there ain't going to be anybody to clap for you. There ain't going to be anybody to stand, oh, how wonderful it is that they picked up that sucker stick off the ground. But it's got to be done. And let me tell you something, even if nobody notices. And I'll tell you this, I've recognized this as a pastor in, in going on nine years. There's a lot of stuff happens around this place that I don't even know about. People serving, people laboring, people doing things that I never even find out about. I don't even know that it happens. And shame on me, but there's times that there's stuff that I just sort of take for granted or don't even ask myself, how did that happen? Who fixed that? Who brought that? Who made that? Who did that? But the reality is there's nothing that escapes God's attention. He sees every single bit of it, and it brings glory to Him. Number three, this was a ministry that was necessary, though in their history... It became neglected. You know that in the house of God, very often when those matters of carrying the wood, doing the things that don't accrue praise and acclaim from men, those things that we aren't necessarily going to hear a preacher, other than tonight maybe, get up and preach on, those things very often are some of those vital functions and vital activities in the New Testament church. 
Things that provide clean facilities. Things that provide a warm environment when people walk through the door. Things that make sure that everything runs on time and smoothly. If those things are removed, then it takes but a moment for things to descend into chaos. The fact is, this ministry, probably nobody ever thought about it, but it was a necessary ministry. And I'll tell you this, the day that they quit bringing the wood, people noticed. Because the fires couldn't burn if the wood wasn't there. So here's the question I want to ask you tonight. Who's going to carry the wood? Now, I'll go ahead and give you the answer as it ought to be. It ought to be every one of us are. Every one of us are going to step in and do what needs to be done, not because it was voted on, not because it was asked of us, but because we see a need and we step in to fill it. And we, every one of us ought to do our part. I was hearing a preacher talk the other day uh, that he had noticed he was in a restaurant. And uh, when he was in that restaurant... Uh, there was uh, the manager of the restaurant uh, walked into the restroom. The preacher was in the restroom, and the manager walked in, used the restroom, went to the uh, to the sink, washed his hands. When he got done, he took the uh, paper towel, took a fresh paper towel, and he wiped down all of the mirror, and he wiped down all of the counter, and he cleaned up, and he tidied everything up. The preacher made this observation that that man didn't do that because he was the manager of that restaurant. He was the manager of the restaurant because he did that. He saw a need and he filled it. He stepped in. He didn't wait for somebody else to show up. He didn't wait for the next shift to see whose job it was going to be. But he saw a need and he stepped into it. He just carried the wood when it needed to be carried. I want us to notice a few things about this office and very simple thoughts. And then we'll close tonight. Turn with me to the book of Joshua chapter number 9. Here's a question we have to ask for a student of Scripture. Why is there no provision made in the Old Testament? Why doesn't God say, this is how you're going to decide whose responsibility it's going to be to carry the wood? Well, two reasons. One, because there was a group of people that traditionally did it before the need arose for it to be done. And two, because God had already known that He was going to use this group of people in this way, in this capacity. God always knows what He's doing. Joshua chapter number 9. There was a time when the children of Israel were uh, conquering uh, Canaan. And they were decimating and destroying every people that they came across. And there was a little group of Canaanites that were known as Gibeonites. The Gibeonites had heard that Israel was headed their way, that the Jews were going to roll over them as they had everyone else. And so they devised a plan to be able to uh, curry favor and pardon from the children of Israel. Some of the elders of the Gibeonites, uh, they put on old ragged clothes, old worn out shoes. They got tired horses that had already been ridden to death. They got old bread that was moldy and old wineskins that had been burst and, and ragged. And they load all this stuff up and they ride over to the camp of the Israelites. And when the Israelites see them, the Gibeonites, uh, they, they ask the Gibeonites, Who are you? Where did you come from? And they said, Well, we're a people from a far and distant land and we have heard of the great might and the great acts and the great feats that your God has done for you. And so we've traveled many a weary mile. Uh, it was really, it was about three or four miles they'd traveled. But they said, we've traveled many a weary mile to come here to beg your pardon and to ask you to spare us. The Bible says that Joshua did not inquire at the mouth of the Lord. He just merely made a gut-level decision. He said, all right, we'll spare you. Look down verse 18. This is where things sort of pick up. Bible says, and the children of Israel smote them not. 
the Gibeonites. Smote them, smote the Gibeonites not, because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation murmured against the princes. But all the princes said unto all the congregation, We have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. Let me back up just a little bit. Look back at verse number 16. Verse 16. It says, And it came to pass the end of three days after they had made a league with them. So three days after they made this agreement, that they heard that they were their neighbors and that they dwelt among them. So that's the preface to it. That's what they're talking about when it says they murmured against them. It says in verse number 20 that the elders said, This we will do to them. We will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath which we swear unto them. And the princes said unto them, Let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregation, as the princes had promised them. Joshua called for them, and he spake unto them, saying, Wherefore have ye beguiled us, saying, We are very far from you when ye dwell among us? Now therefore ye are cursed, and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen and hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So in other words, these Gibeonites, they pull a fast one on Joshua and the rest of the congregation. But once they hear who these Gibeonites are, they've done made a promise before God that they're not going to destroy these people. And so they go to them and they say, well, here's the deal. We're not going to kill you. We swore by our God that we weren't going to do that. But your job from here on is going to be a hewer of wood and a drawer of water for the ministry for the house of God. The creation of this office reveals to us that there was an original group of people who for unusual reasons and in the strangest of circumstances became the officiants of this job. Now you're going to say, well, preacher, that's good and everything. I appreciate the history lesson, but what does that have to do with me? Well, I want you to think about something. Uh, Most of us have probably spent a few years in church. And you know, there's certain people that just do what we're talking about tonight. You don't have to ask them. They just look for a need and fill it. They just look for a job and do it. They don't need applause. They don't need appreciation even. They're content just to have a servant's heart. Can I tell you something? One of the things that worries me as a pastor, not just of Walridge Baptist Church, but just as a pastor, I don't think, in other words, I don't think it's endemic just to our church, but I think it's everywhere, is I think sadly a lot of these people are going away. And there's a lot of us younger people that aren't stepping in and filling the responsibility. A lot of these types of people that I'm talking about that just see a need and fill it, that carry the wood wherever they find it, that are just content to just do the work and to labor and to serve. Many of them getting older. Many of them are dying. Many of them are unable to do what once they did. And it's a great disturbance to me that we don't see some of us younger people stepping in to fill that role. Because the question has to be asked, what's going to happen in 20 years? Who's going to carry the wood then? You see, what was it about those people that made them that way? didn't have to ask them. They just did it. Well, some of it's character. I'll just be honest. Some of it's character. Some people are raised with good character. They're raised to be the type of person that wipes down the sink and the mirror and that just sees that everything is put in order. But I think with these Gibeonites, we have a hint as to how these people became the way they were. I wrote down three things. Let's notice, number one, that they were pardoned by pity. They recognized that they had no lot no reason and no right to be amongst the camp of Israel. They were there simply because Joshua had took pity upon them. Had they gotten what they deserved, they would have been ran over and annihilated just like every other people. And so they lived with a sense of gratitude, recognizing 
that, hey, they didn't even have a right to be in the camp. So who were they to say, I'm too good to do this, or I'm too good to do that? Can I tell you something? The farther we get from Calvary in our mind, oftentimes the colder we get towards the idea of servanthood. The closer we stay to Calvary, the more vividly we can see and recognize that, man, hey, we're only here because we've been pardoned by God's pity. He loved us. He had compassion upon us. The more likely we are to serve. The closer the Lord got to Calvary, what did He do? The more He served. The night before He went to the cross, He took a bowl and He took a towel and He girded about Him and He knelt down and He washed His disciples' feet. You see, the crucified life and the, the service life, the servant's life, are, are one and the same. The more we crucify self, the more willing we are to serve, even when it means not having any praise or appreciation, even when it means nobody but God knowing what we're doing. We're willing to do it. You know why? Because He's the one we're doing it for in the first place. They were pardoned by pity. Number two, they were covered by a covenant. They couldn't be snuffed out. So they weren't doing what they were doing because they were on probation. They were doing what they were doing because they were grateful. And because they had brought, been brought into this covenant family of the nation of Israel, they had been given a new life, and they wanted to make that life count for something. Again, I think of some of the older saints of God that just had this spirit about them. Very often, those are the very ones that are the quickest to worship, the quickest to testify, the quickest to talk about the goodness of God. I don't think that's an accident that those two things go hand in hand. The, the servant's heart, and the willingness to worship. I don't think it's an accident those things go hand in hand. I think they view it as they've been given a new lease on life. They've been given a new life by the Lord Jesus, and they want to live it for Him. Let me tell you this. When we view our day, our life, as a day-by-day expression of the life of Christ through us, that we have this day not to live for ourselves, but to live for the Lord. If we live like that, we'll find it's easy to have a servant's heart. They were covered by a covenant. Number three, they were moved by mercy. You didn't have to try to get them motivated. They were already motivated. You didn't have to give them pep talks. You didn't have to keep them straight. You didn't have to keep them on the right path. They were moved by mercy. That Joshua and the children of Israel had been so merciful to them. I'm going to say a word about it before we close. But you know, there's a lot of people that have a very gut-level, instinctive uh, sort of draw towards the idea of a servant's life, of servanthood, of, of taking that role, of carrying the wood. But then the second that something happens, that somebody hurts their feelings, the second that the going gets tough, the second that somebody neglects them, all of a sudden they're twisted up in knots. And you know, often that's just a good indication to me that they they started off with the wrong motive. See, if your motive is just to glorify the Lord and please Him, it's not going to matter to you or me whether anybody... Now listen, it's nice when people notice. It's nice when people appreciate it. It's nice when people uh, give us acclaim and, and applause and appreciation. I enjoy it just like you enjoy it. But what are we going to do if that's not there? Are we just going to lay down and quit? That's probably a good indication we were doing it for the wrong reason in the first place. The Gibeonites, at least this first generation of Gibeonites, they were happy and contented to serve. Now, the question has to be asked, well, what happened? What happened? Well, it appears that a couple things happened. One, as the generations of Gibeonites drew on, they lost this sense of servanthood. 
They continued to serve, but they served because they had to. They didn't serve because they wanted to. And so when you come down to the Babylonian captivity, everybody is taken captive out of Israel. And then under Cyrus the Great, they're given the choice whether they want to go back. Very likely the Gibeonites simply said, uh, no thank you. We'll stay right here in Babylon where we're free men. We can live however we want. We can do whatever we want. You know, eventually we're going to have to reconcile with this church. Eventually, so many of these old saints of God that do these things, they're going to have, there's going to be a time that they're moving on. There's going to be a time that they can't do what they did. There's going to be a time when they can't fill the roles that they filled. And what's going to happen when that day comes? Well, there had to be a group of people. Before we get to that, let me give you a few consequences of this office. So why did it matter? Well, three reasons. One, there had to be somebody to carry the wood for the fires to burn. The sacrifices couldn't be given if there was no wood to kindle. You know, these sacrifices were given to please and to satisfy God. And let me just say it again. Let me just echo it. Let me emphasize it. Even those responsibilities and those jobs that we don't find clear scriptural text for, but we know practically speaking, somebody's got to, hey, somebody's got to work the nursery. Somebody's got to teach the class. Somebody's got to run the sound. Somebody's got to keep the property nice. Somebody's got to uh, change the furnace filter. Somebody's got to do these things. And there's a tendency sometimes to despise these. But we need to recognize that the church cannot fulfill her greater commission, at least not in the current situation we're in, Unless those things are done effectively and faithfully. Listen, I, I was talking to a guy the other day that has asked me some questions about the church. and This happens every once in a while. Somebody will want to ask me why we do the things that we do in the church. This guy was not a church member and he was not talking to me about our church. He was just talking about the church in the day that we live in. And he was saying, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we do that they didn't do in the New Testament church. And I said, that's true. There are a lot of things that we do today that we did not do in the New Testament church. For instance, if you want, we can rip out the air conditioner. We can get rid of the pads on the pews. We can get rid of the instruments. We can sing a cappella. Uh, we can get rid of a lot of things. You can give up your car if you'd like to and walk to church. There's a lot of things that just are in the peripheral of church life that, of course, have changed throughout the years. And I expect will change in another 50 years. Listen, if in 50 years we ain't got flying cars, I'm just going to quit. We've been promised since the Jetsons flying cars. There's stuff, of course, that's going to change. The message does not change. The methods don't change. The fundamentals, the philosophy of ministry doesn't change. But of course there are things that change. And there are things that are required. And, uh, you know, the, the, the guy was, he started talking to me about home churches. And he said, well, I just wonder if home churches aren't the way to go. And I said, well, I don't think so. And he said, why? And I said, well, you can't claim that we are the church, therefore the building does not matter. And that's true, by the way. We are the church, and therefore the building does not matter. But he said, you cannot, or I said to him, you cannot claim we are the church, us individually, therefore the building don't matter. So the biggest problem we've got is the building. There's a breakdown in logic there. You can't have your cake and eat it too. At the end of the day, if the idea is we are the church, and we are, it's not the drywall, it's not the studs, it's not the carpet, it's not the pews, it's the people, right? So that means it don't matter if we meet in a church house, it don't matter if we meet in a home. I would, I wouldn't be against home churches if there wasn't so many church buildings sitting empty. Somebody say amen to that. Most of the home church movement today is born of a spirit of rebellion and of, of a kicking against the 
pastoral authority, and, and very often out of a, out of a spirit of fickleness. Uh, some folks just can't get along with nobody, so they go to church with themselves and they even lay out then because they don't want to see the other people when they get there. You know, at the end of the day, what I'm getting at is this. There's a lot of things we do, and we do it so that we can have church. But you understand that we have church so that we can please God. Therefore, those things that we're doing, we're not doing it. Listen, we don't change a furnace filter because there's too many furnace filters in the world. We don't work a nursery because there's no daycares in the world. We don't teach a Sunday school class because we got nothing to do between 10 and 11 a.m. We do those things in pursuit of pleasing God. For the fires to burn, the wood had to be carried. Number two, for the people to worship, the wood had to be carried. And we're getting really, I think, to the heart of it, which is this. Nobody could have come and drawn closer to God had there not been somebody that brought the wood. You know why we do what we do? We do what we do for that sinner that may walk through the door looking for truth and saw a church steeple and thought, hey man, maybe they got some answers. And you say, well, preacher, why does it matter if I try to go around and tidy up and pick up and clean up so that when they walk through the door, they walk in and say, man, these people care about the house of God. Why, why preachers, it's so important uh, for me to be working in the nursery and me to be faithful to that so that when that young family comes in, that young mother comes in and got two kids on either arm and she's just thirsting to hear from God and she knows if she sits there with them babies, they're going to be climbing all over top of her she ain't going to hear a word from it. And so she's needing to hear from the Lord and she needs somebody to carry the wood and to help her out. What I'm saying is all these things are important because they facilitate people drawing closer to God, people worshiping. The fires hadn't burned. The altar couldn't have functioned. The people couldn't have brought their sacrifices. It's all part of the process. And then number three, for the temple to flourish, the wood had to be carried. What happened when they quit carrying the wood? That's what happens between chapter 10 and chapter 13 of the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 10, when they're getting everything uh, set aright, Nehemiah appoints people to do it, and then they quit doing it. And so by the time you get to chapter 13, the house of God is a ghost house. Nobody's there. You know why? Because people quit carrying the wood. And pretty soon, maybe not right away, they probably had some stores of wood. They probably had a few cords in the back. They probably had a rick here and there, but sooner or later, sooner or later it was all gone. And when it was all gone, the temple merely ceased to function. What does it take to be somebody that carries the wood? I'll close with this. Let me give you three credentials for this office. You might say to yourself, well, preacher, don't take nothing but a strong back and a willing spirit. Well, that's part of it. But it does take a little more than that because there's a lot of people with strong backs and willing spirits that commit to do it and then flake out and give out and give up within two, three months. So what does it take to perpetuate the wood offering? What does it take to carry the wood in perpetuity? Look what he says verse number 30. It says, Thus cleansed I them from all the strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business. Now I find it interesting that he appoints the priests and the Levites. I find it especially interesting for this reason. Because in chapter 10 it says he appointed the priests, the Levites, and the people. But in chapter 13, after things have done fell apart, this time he doesn't include the average people. Could it be that Nehemiah recognized this? That folks that did not, in Old Testament times, that did not have the sense of devotion and consecration that the priests and Levites had, they just wouldn't be faithful carrying the wood. 
And it leads me to this thought. You're going to have to be devoted to carry the wood. Now, I I don't mean that you're going to have to be committed to the task. I'm going to say a word about that in a moment. But I'm talking about the priests and the Levites were priests and Levites because they had been set aside for the worship and ministry and service of God. And, And listen, I'm telling you this. You're not going to believe me when I say this, but I'm telling you the truth. You ain't going to change the furnace filter long if you ain't in your Bible. You ain't going to work the nursery long if you ain't in the prayer closet. Somebody give me a witness there. You're not going to teach the Sunday school class long if you're not keeping short accounts with God. I'm saying none of this stuff is disjointed or disconnected from our basic fundamental communion, walk, fellowship, devotion to God. And that's part of the problem is I think that sometimes we think if what we're doing in the house of God is not directly connected to some ministry of the Word, so to speak, of of delivering the Word to people or singing or, or, or something that is directly connected to worship, I think sometimes we get the idea that we don't have to stay as close to the Lord. Well, what does it matter? Listen, if I sin, I can still change the furnace filter. Can I say something? I have no clue if our furnace filters need to be changed. That just happened to be the task that stuck in my mind when I was studying through this. Uh, so don't, I don't want, I'm going to walk out there, there's going to be six furnace filters jammed into that furnace. That's not what I'm asking for. But I, I just as an example, and I think there's tendency, you say, well, you know, it don't matter. What does it matter? I can still do it whether I'm read my Bible. No, here's the thing. You can, but you won't. You won't. Because I don't know if you've ever chopped wood before, but it sure enough ain't fun. I, you, you hear about people sometimes that just like to work for a hobby. I don't know what's the matter with them. I suspect it's a genetic defect. But they, they just, you know, they enjoy, I guess it's a means of activity. It's a means of exerting, you know, uh, energy and, and keeping in shape. I don't know. I'll tell you this, I never enjoyed a day of my life that I ever helped Daddy cut wood. And I did a few times. I never enjoyed a moment of it. Even as a little boy holding an axe in my hand. Still, just the manual labor of it robbed what would otherwise have been a joyous moment. If you put an axe in a child's hand, they are thrilled to death. But I never even enjoyed it because I thought, well, I can't even cut nobody with this. i got to cut that wood with this. It's not an enjoyable task. And let me tell you something. Oftentimes, the things that we do in the house of God, we may derive joy out of it. You know what's interesting? I don't know if this is... I wasn't even going to mention it. We don't. I don't really know if it's true. Commentators make the statement... They say that historically, that the wood offering, the day that the wood offering would be brought in by the various uh, families when it was families and then later on the priests, that that for those families became a festival day. And it wasn't like a high day. It wasn't something that the whole nation celebrated together. But for them, it was a personal family feast day. And they would they would cook a meal and they would rejoice and they would celebrate. And for them, it was a big deal. Can I tell you something? There's going to be a lot of times when serving God don't feel like a party. And if you're not staying close to God, in those moments, that's when it's going to be easy to put the axe down and just walk away from it. It takes devoted people. Devoted not just to the work, but devoted to the to the Lord. They had to be clean. They had to stay close to God to perform these tasks. Number two, they had to be dedicated. Dedicated. Notice what it says. He, he says in verse number 30 uh, that he appointed wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business... Now, there's a lot of things I want to say about that, which is this. Hey, listen, you, the, the, what was it Hank Williams said about minding business? You're minding your own, we won't have no time to mind mine. We could say something about his business. 
But can I just merely say this? It blesses my heart to think about one of these Old Testament priests going out and chopping wood. And he made that task his business. Can I tell you something that blesses a pastor's heart? When somebody gets involved in some ministry and they just, they just embrace it wholeheartedly. They just weave it into the fabric of their life to the degree that, man, that in their mind, that's what they do. That's what they walk this earth for is to teach at Sunday school. That's what they walk this earth for is to fill that role or that responsibility. That's what they walk this earth for. And I'm not talking about being territorial. I'm not talking about being self-involved. But I'm saying they say, hey, this is my business. This isn't a hobby. This isn't a, a playground. This is my business. I take it seriously. And it's something that I have devoted myself unto. They appropriated this to themselves. They said, man, this is my business. This is my job. And if it's not done, it's because I didn't do my job. And if it's not done well, it reflects poorly on me because it's my job. It's my business. They were devoted to this thing. Listen, you can be as spectacular as it comes, but if you're not devoted, then you're of no use in the work of God and you're of no use to the Lord. You've got to be devoted to it. And finally, and I'm done tonight, you have to be dependable. Look what it says in verse number 31. And for the wood offering, at times appointed. So in other words, they had a schedule, right? We do this all the time in the house of God. We've got a children's church rotation. We've got a, a special song rotation, a nursery rotation, piano play, offering, offertory rotation. And you know, those things only function when people are there at the times appointed. Imagine what a mess it would have been if six wagons of wood had showed up at the same time and they had no place to store it. Imagine what a mess that it would have been if they had thrown the last piece of wood on the fire and looked over at the extra stores that was supposed to show up yesterday and they hadn't been there. You see, the only way this ministry worked is if people were dependable, if you could count on them. The reason it all fell apart was because it had been a group of people at one time that you couldn't have counted on. Can I make a very simple statement to you this evening in closing? As with any other work in life, availability and dependability always trump ability. Ability. I'll let you in on a little secret, man. Most churches, it's true of our church, it's probably true of most churches you would be familiarized and acquainted with. Man, they ain't looking for a superstar. They're just looking for somebody faithful. Just somebody faithful. They ain't looking for the best singer in the world, but they're looking for somebody that will be there when their time is. They're not looking for the best piano player in the world, but they're looking for somebody that will be there when their time is. They're not looking for the best uh, Sunday school teacher in the world. They're just looking for one that will be there when their time is. Dependable. At their appointed times. It's not glamorous. Nobody clapped for them when they rolled in with the wood in the wagon. But if they hadn't done what they did... The house of God couldn't have functioned. And the way we know it is because when they quit doing what they were supposed to do, everything ground to a halt. To a halt. One of the greatest setbacks, one of the greatest hindrances to the work of God in many churches, and churches our size in particular, is that you have a lot of well-meaning people that love the Lord, that love the church, that love people, but that are not willing to revere the work of God with the level of devotion and dependability that is necessary for the work of God to flourish. It's not that they don't love it. It's not that they don't care about it. But it's just that they're not willing to take the work of God seriously enough to be counted on. 
And because of that, oftentimes they personally are hindered in being able to be used or the ministry and the service they're involved in is hindered and is not flourishing to the capacity that it that it could be. Or the church at large is not able to launch out and attempt new and great things because they don't have the confidence that they wish they had that there'd be people there to carry the wood. There's no telling. It don't take very many. In the book of Acts, it took two people that were sold out to God to turn the world upside down. It don't take very many. But it takes all of those that they, that we have. It don't take a lot. It just takes it all. <laughs> you get what I said? It don't take a lot. It doesn't take many. But it does take all. It does take all of us in commitment to serving the Lord and doing what God has called us to. Sometimes it's just carrying wood. But when one of the great and chief works of God is to keep an altar fire burning... I'd say the person that carries the wood is a pretty important person. 